You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What does it take to breed and train a sport horse from the ground up? This week, we're talking to an American breeder about just that. Thanks for tuning in. From Heels Down Mag, a podcast where horse pros chat about what's happening in the horse world over drinks. Welcome Welcome to Happy happy hour. Hour. I'm Justine Griffin. I'm Jessica Payne. And welcome to episode 113 of Heels Down Happy Hour. What's going on? How's it going? I know poor Ellie is hauling a horse right now. (laughs) So we're going to catch up with her in a minute. But how are you, Jess? What's going on? I'm good. I'm good. Everything's been busy here, but a nice couple weeks at home, which will be nice. And then back on the road, back to Tryon in a couple weeks. But we're just enjoying the weather is like very nice right now. So it's actually been a lot of fun just to be at the farm and the kids have been running around and Hudson's learning golf. So he's been so good. Oh, I know. I feel like your home farm is your guys's favorite hotel. <laughs> it is. It is our favorite hotel. That's exactly it. Uh, but I hear you got a good drink this week that came from a listener. I did. So thank you guys so much for indulging in my bourbon, I don't know, infatuation, I guess I'd say, because I don't really venture out. So I had two different listeners actually send me this recipe and I'm so excited. It's called a bourbon margarita. And so I I literally just got the second one and I was like, oh my goodness, I have to try it. So I have not made it yet, but I have all the ingredients to make it this week, but I want you guys to try it with me this week. It's the best whiskey margarita, they say. You do one ounce of bourbon, three quarters ounce of the Contrero, one and a half ounces of lime juice, an ounce of agave, and salt to salt the rim. And then they say just run the slice of lime around the edge of a margarita glass and dip it in salt. You add the bourbon, Contrero, lime juice, agave syrup, and a couple of ice to the cocktail shaker. Shake it for five to six seconds and till the outside's frosty, they say, and then strain it and serve in the prepped margarita glass and fill it with ice and you're ready to enjoy. Mm, okay. I'm, they, they I didn't said, believe this that was this is a tip. Okay. This is the tip though, is that if you want a stronger drink and you want a little like not so much sugar, they just say use less agave. Interesting. Okay. So when you first told me that this was the drink you're bringing tonight, I, I was like, I don't know if I can get behind this, but I don't know. This, it really, it sounds pretty good. I'm really excited to try it because with two listeners that sent literally bourbon margaritas, I was like, I have to try it. So I was like, I have to bring it. And I really want you guys to try it with me because it sounds so good Mm because that's the same. So a lot of people do margaritas different ways, but this is the exact way I do my margaritas. And I actually do mine without the agave, like we talked about. And so I'm excited to try this with a little less agave and it's a little healthier. I mean, it's a drink, so it's really not healthy. It's still got tons of sugar in it, but (laughs) I'm really excited to try this as like a different bourbon drink. Definitely. Me too. This episode is brought to you by clipmyhorse.tv. Clip My Horse is the live stream provider of equestrian sports and breeding around the world. And I hope you're as excited as I am for the CHIO Aachen World Equestrian Festival, which kicks off later this month and runs into early July, which will showcase world-class equestrian sport and a very special atmosphere. 
Just I'm super excited to watch it. We've got a bunch of friends going over in the show jumping and, and eventing. Uh-huh. And it is it is one place. Doug went and trained there right before Tokyo. He says it's incredible. And so proud that Will Coleman's name is on the board. And right. I really hope an American can try to take over the show jumping and eventing and the dressage. It's all three in one venue and it's pretty amazing it is on our bucket list to go to because i it has been my all-time bucket list show to go to i've only heard really amazing things and if you're like me and you're jonesing to go and see it i mean clip my horse is the is the next best possible opportunity because they will bring you all of the action live from Aachen right to your homes wherever you can stream and wherever you have wi-fi so you can tune in on ClipMyHorse.tv and you won't miss a second of the world's best riders and horses competing in multiple dis- disciplines for this very specific World Equestrian Festival. And the cherry on top is that we have a coupon code for you. Oh. So obviously, Jess and I have shared how much we love Clip My Horse and how it keeps us connected to horse shows going all around all over the world. Well, you can join us and by signing up for your own one-year premium membership with 10% off by using this coupon code, which is HEELS, like the name of our show, H-E-E-L-S-1-0, as in 10. So HEELS10 will get you 10% off a one-year premium membership after the first free trial month. And That is amazing. Get- and guys, remember, when these big shows or any show is on, I love to just put it on my TV. They have an app for your TV or for your phone. And so you don't even have to like go searching. It's just like the, you know, YouTube TV little icon we have and it, or Disney plus or whatever else you just click on, click my horse and it's got everything there. All right. And on to the news. Our news section is brought to you by the heels down spark. The only daily equestrian newsletter. It's free. You can subscribe by going to bit.ly back slash spark by HD. All right, Jess, what you got for us? I've got some really cool news. So this past weekend was Bramham over in England. Right. And Piva Funnel won the four-star. And that's amazing, right? Props to her. She won the four-star, the four-long. She had a great show. But what's even more impressive is she's won it now four times over four decades. So she won it in 92. She won it in 2002. She won it in 2010, and now she won it in 2023. And that's just the depth of her competition and that she's still so amazing at the level is you just got to give it props. And it's like a feel-good story that you watch this, you know, take the title again. And it was it was amazing. Oh, my God. It was so cool to watch. It was uh, so fun to watch. I love Pippa. She's, she's one of my favorites. <laughs> yes. But awesome. What do you have for news? So I have a fun sciencey story. Equus Magazine, one of my favorites that do a really great job in the industry of like sharing research as it's happening, you know, once it's published and how it's affecting the horse world. They published a story that sheds more light into how horses vision one differs from ours as humans, but also how we should really consider the way they see the world and how they approach certain scenarios, right? So I learned some things from reading this story. The first thing is, I ne- I didn't know this, but 23% of horses are nearsighted, which means that they don't see details clearly until they get pretty close to an object. 
And 43% of horses are farsighted, which means they're able to make out details only as they get farther away from an object. So when I think about that, like when I think of near and farsighted, I think of when we drive a car, right? Like whether you can see things from far away or you need to be closer to see things. And I'm not sure, you know, like as an amateur who's owned a variety of horses, I've got two horses now. I probably couldn't tell you if one of mine was nearsighted or farsighted, but it's probably an important thing to know, especially when we're asking them to do specific jobs like gallop through the woods and come out and jump a ditch or, you know, whatever it is. So that's something I thought that was something super interesting to keep in mind. Also, another another cool factoid from this story, which we will absolutely link to in the show notes, is a horse's visual range stretches from the end of their nose. So think about how they look down to the end of their nose all the way around to an imaginary line extending straight back from their hip, which is pretty cool yeah. to, to think that, you know, obviously when we with their eye placement, you know that they don't really see that great right directly in front of them, but they see this interesting vision from the side that it it goes all the way that far back, which is pretty cool to think about. Yeah, that's really interesting. The story also gets into about how evolution has played a role in how horses can be highly aware of peripheral motion. So obviously they're prey animals. They are highly sensitive to to certain movements, but that's been the, for their survival. But also now, you know, as we, they don't have to react in that way as often. It's, it's just interesting to think about how horses perceive the world and perceive their surroundings when we're asking them to do specific things, right. That really go yeah. against a lot of their natural in- instincts and to be mindful of those things. So we will share this story in the show notes and you guys can read more about horses, how horses see. Hi, Ellie. How are you? We heard you were hauling the horse trailer all day. Oh, yes. Why I thought I thought it I could do it all in one day. <laughs> hey, oh, been boy. there. Been there. I know what you're doing. Literally crossed the entire state from top to bottom past Boyd Martin's place on my way. Said hello. And oh, my said, goodness. Goodbye. <laughs> so, yeah. But I... I'm happy to not be driving anymore. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like we need Boyd Martin to send us a picture of the cat couch you sent him. Right? I w- I wanted to stop in and if I if I wasn't, you know, on the move, I would have just been like, <laughs> so, I don't even think he's there right now, but I would have been like, you like your cat couch? <laughs> so funny. So, Ellie, uh, what news do you have for us? <laughs> yeah. So, I I wanted to do more looking into like the how air quality impacts horse health, especially with wildfires and everything. Since I was having to deal with that, I was doing a lot of research and I actually found a couple of good articles about, you know, what it kind of means for horses. So like the AQI is divided up into like a score of zero to 500. Okay. And it's like broken into different like colors from like green to like purple, which is like super hazardous. And really and truly for horses, like anything above 150, you really ought to limit riding and exercise until the smoke clears. And this doctor, Dr. Pinkerton, who is at UC Davis, talked about how smoke inhalation really can cause a whole bunch of issues. And it's it doesn't even matter the, well, it does matter, but even a small, mild case of smoke inhalation can take two to four weeks to fully recover from because of just, you know, these are this is the largest organ in the horse's body. And they basically 
can inhale a lot of smoke. With wildfires, you have to worry about the particles that are actually in the smoke. So it's not just it's little solid particles, little droplets, and they can be, you know, as tiny as less than a micron in diameter. So not even like visible to the human eye, but still can cause issues with the lungs. And so moral of the story is just to when you're in this kind of wildfire smoke advisory period, it's really important to monitor your horses for their respiratory rates. So it should be like 12 to 24 breaths per minute. And if that starts to go up, that's when you would start to be concerned. And then also just, you know, nose gook and also like coughing and things like that. But he he made a really kind of scary comparison. And that was that at rates at where the AQI is higher than 300, where it's considered hazardous to people, that's like the equivalent to a horse smoking 80 packs of cigarettes per day. Oh, my um, goodness. So that's kind of scary. And in those kind of levels, they need six to eight weeks to recover. So I think, I mean, this is something that, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I didn't get to those levels, but it's something that is definitely scary to think about. But then the other article from the horse just has talked about what you should do in those kind of situations and how you can help your horses. So obviously you can't really improve what's around you, right? You can't, you can't magically make the air better. Air purifiers in a barn, I don't think would be very successful because of the magnitude of size. But the biggest thing is to make sure that they are close to their water and have lots of fresh water because the water actually helps to keep their airways moist, which helps kind of filter out some of those particles and allow them to kind of get stuck in the nostrils as opposed to going into the deepest parts of the lungs. They also actually considered feeding like an omega-3 or fatty acid because that might actually help horses that already have respiratory conditions. And then other things like since they have to be in more confined areas because you're trying to limit the activity that they're doing, things like keeping fans going and actually soaking hay and using like dust-free beddings. So that way they're not having as many of the environmental irritants that would normally be in the barn to try to limit all irritants that aren't the smoke because they're already having to combat all of that. That's a lot. I mean, that's, you know, I, it's funny because it depends on where you live and what type of natural disasters you have to prepare for. And I don't know, maybe because it's, I'm from Florida that preparing for the hurricane with the horses seems less overwhelming than having to deal with that. That's like quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's something I've never had to deal with before. I mean, I've, I've never even heard of anything like this in the Northeast during my lifetime. So it's definitely definitely spooky because even if it like looks fine, it might not be fine. Like there was a couple times here where it smelled like burning plastic because, you know, unfortunately with wildfires, it's not just, you know, trees. There's a lot of chemicals and stuff too. So it's just, it's scary that you can't put like magical respirators on all the horses, <laughs> but definitely good stuff to, to keep in mind for sure. Absolutely. So shout out to everyone who supports our show on Patreon. We really appreciate any little bit that listeners can donate. You help keep this show on the air 
And in return, we try to provide you with really great exclusive content, whether that's interviews with Jess and Doug and what's going on inside their farm and their training practices, or what's up with Ellie and Matt at their farm up in Pennsylvania, or even me with the Thoroughbreds here in Florida. We try to give you some extra perks and some fun things on Patreon every month. If you want to support us, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash heels down. So guys, I thought we could pick up where we left off on the conversation about shipping boots, which we had in the last episode, thanks to a listener who sent in a mailbag. It got me thinking, you know, as I'm preparing for the thoroughbred makeover in Kentucky, that's going to be the longest haul I've ever done, going through multiple states, obviously, from Florida to the Kentucky Horse Park. I thought it might be fun to share what your favorite tricks are, your favorite things to pack, what are your must-haves to have in the trailer for either a long or short haul. Maybe, Ellie, you want to start since it's top of mind? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so for today, I did a total of nine hours. It was four and a half half there. I left my house at 3.50 in the morning and four and a half back. So luckily, Berkeley's, you know, done those kind of drives. I mean, he's from Canada. He knows the drill. And he luckily had a nice, like, three and a half hour break between the two. So that was nice for him to stretch his legs and things like that. But so the biggest things that I do, and as somebody who's kind of cheap, like, I think the biggest thing, right, is you want to have access to be able to stop and give them water because they obviously don't have access to that when they're in the trailer. And I actually use just like the sealable, like five gallon paint buckets from like Lowe's because you can stick those tops on and they seal up real well. And they're way cheaper than having to buy like one of the big water, like either the stand up ones that can go in your tack room or like the flat ones that can go in like the bed of your truck. And for me, like I'm not hauling, you know, a whole bunch of horses. Like I have a two horse trailer. So for me, if I just fill two of those things and then put them in the bed of my truck, that's what I like to do a little better just because it's, it's cheap and it's quick. (laughs) But the biggest thing, and especially with Berkeley today, I always bring Gatorade because sometimes when Berkeley's traveling, he doesn't really care for drinking water or for anything I do on the brakes. He's like, I just would rather you keep driving so we can get home Like he's just like over it. So like having Gatorade or like things like, you know, horse quencher that can kind of encourage them to drink, I think is huge, especially for, you know, long hauls. And then obviously he got his ulcer guard this morning. But yeah, I think those are my those are my top things in terms of for me. I make sure I have like I got sweet, sour and salty things. (laughs) and water because <laughs> like that way I feel like I'm never going to get tired. I cannot because I can always put food in my mouth. So that helps for me when I'm driving long ways. Yeah. So no, for I us, love those tips. Yeah, those are really good because I didn't think about the Gatorade's great for us. I always, well, one, we always have like, you know, an extra halter in case like something breaks. But then also the biggest mistake I did was years ago, I put all of my try like tire changing stuff in the very back of it. And then I packed the trailer completely full and then we could barely get to it. So (laughs) from now on, we actually make sure all like we have like a trailer aid and the, you know, tea looking thing that gets all the lug nuts loose and everything. We get all that 
super close so that if you were to have a flat tire or, or whatever, you can quickly change it and then you can get in and out of that situation quicker than like having to dig it out because you've packed too much stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I was going to say the trailer aid is my number one thing and it's cheap. You can buy it on Amazon for like less than 40 bucks and that huh. will, that will save you, man. You know, it's, it's like so one of those easier. things that you want to buy it once and not have to think about it. Cause like the day that you need it, you're going to be really <laughs> grateful you have it, you know? Exactly. But I'm like you, Ellie, I have a cool, like tall standing water tank that I always make sure has fresh water in it. Yeah. And I like the Gatorade trick. I also use Gallagher's water. Oh, that's a good one. And I also like, I like to give my horse before he gets on the trailer. I think we shared this in a news item before that horses that have sort of a full stomach, like they've had a full meal before they get on the trailer are less likely to have gastric issues while traveling. I like to give them either like a full bucket of water with electrolytes and soaked cubes like alfalfa cubes or TNA cubes or even honestly the replenimash from Purina because it's got a full serving of Outlast in it. If they can eat that before they get on the trailer, it makes me feel better that one, they've it's something sloppy where they, I've gotten water into them. Two, I've got something in their stomach that's keeping their tummy working. Because like Wyatt, for example, is no, ma no matter what hay is in the hay bag in the trailer, he never eats it when we're moving. He's just too much of a nervous guy during hauling that he never eats the hay. Like where Michael will eat a hay bag in 45 minutes. So I like to make sure that they've got something in their tummy before they get on. My trailer is not one that has fans that are, you know, like attached. So I've bought like like cheapo plastic fans from target that run on battery power just to keep the airflow moving in there. Just cause Florida it's hot. You know, I just, I think about them baking in the back of a trailer all the time. So keeping them nice and cool and comfortable and knock on wood, you know, I've been really lucky so far in my hauling that I've never had major issues, but I'm somebody who 100% travels with like the lug nut gun that you're talking about, Jess. And yep. then also like two cans of fix a flat always. Cause you just never know, you know what I mean? You just don't want to get stuck. I'm also someone that has like a medical kit that is like my grab and go bag. That's always in the trailer. It's the first thing I check for, which is got butbanamine and generally a sedative of some kind, whether it's ACE or dorm gel, just like, God forbid you need it. You don't want to be in a pinch on the side of a highway somewhere. Just something. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And also, I always pack at least one extra meal, you know, one extra bag of grain, one extra serving of hay no or bale of hay, no matter where I'm going, because you never know, especially if you're going far, like how, you know, what, how close is a feed store going to be? I just feel like every time I pack that extra meal, I always end up using it, to be honest. So I always pack at least one extra. Yeah. And I think it's also good to, to mention, like, I mean, it's so important to have your trailer, like floor and stuff inspected regularly oh sure and replaced like mine has the steel cross members and like the pressure treated wood floor and like i get it replaced even i'm kind of anal about it i get it replaced even if they don't need replacing <laughs> i'm like i want it like super sturdy but that kind of stuff and like checking your your lights and things before you go even if you checked them the last time i feel like it always makes me feel better when I do a lap around and make sure everything is like completely okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So our guest tonight is Dr. Elizabeth Callahan. 
She is a breeder that she's actually ridden through the intermediate level herself in eventing. She got her silver USDA medal on an off-the-track thoroughbred. Last year, she had a pretty impressive result saying that she had horses in the four, five-year-old young event horse, the three-star and the five-star all at Maryland last fall that she bred. And she was the top scoring future event horse overall on the West Coast and the top future three-year-old in the U.S. last year. So she has some impressive results from her breeding. She loves to breed for sport. And so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for asking. So I know you love to talk about breeding. And for all of our listeners, we have probably gotten five, I think, of Didi's babies. We have one called Lysander, who's since moved on, but he went advanced. We have Quantum Leap that you guys, most of you know, is one of our five-star horses. We have Didi's favorite one in the whole barn, Carl or Camarillo. <laughs> <laughs> that is a joke because Didi is actually really obsessed with Quantum or Cuberon, but her ugly stepchild something yeah, is Carl. Carl. <laughs> and so she has a love-hate relationship for that one, for sure. And she's just glad she doesn't have to ride it. So. Yes. Definitely. Especially when we share lovely pictures of that one that circulates <laughs> once a year of Carl over his first ditch. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it is a good one. So, well, I'd love to talk about where do you even start when you're wanting to, like, buy a young baby horse to bring up, like, levels of the sport? Like, where would we even, how do you guys go about, like, picking them for? Because you do such a great job of knowing which young horse or baby would be suited for myself or Doug or Justine. So tell us a little bit about like what goes on in your head when thinking about it, because you have such an impressive resume of young horses. Well, I think the first thing is that in in the U.S., we have a huge supply of really well-bred horses. We just can't find them. You know, we have now the bloodlines in the U.S. that are equal to Europe, same bloodlines, same quality, but we're spread out over a huge country. So I think that that the horses are there. They just require a lot more looking. And I guess the first thing you have to be really cognizant of is what are you looking for? Because the horse that's suitable for, say, Doug is not going to be suitable for me. So I think that looking for breeders that have produced upper-level horses that you've seen, and, you know, especially there there are a couple of us now that have produced, you know, multiple advanced and and four-star, three-star horses. So looking to one of them to, to start is great. And I think the problem is it's really just hard to find that information. You know, the USEA is now starting a better database or hopefully more of a database where we can get some ideas. But I think that a lot of people are either overmounted, especially adult amateurs that buy, you know, really flashy horses that really have way too much athletic ability for what they need. And I think the pros a lot of times get discouraged looking and, you know, go to Europe, which I can't blame them. I mean, it's a lot easier to find something in Europe than it is here. But I think the quality is the same nowadays. Yeah, no, I think it's impressive because what exactly, like when you're looking for, let's say for the sport of eventing and you're trying to breed one of the upper level ones that could be a three and five star, what are you looking for? I know you've got, it's pretty impressive in the dam side, but what are you looking for sire wise and dam wise? So I really like thoroughbred still. I still have a lot of thoroughbred and I, I, I know the sport's changing, you know, we see horses that really don't have much blood still going five-star, but I really still like a thoroughbred. So 
you know, what I'm looking for in a thoroughbred mare is usually uh, a distance pedigree. And there's some names that I look for in a pedigree, a distance pedigree and a nice big framed, you know, rangy mare that's a super mover. And I think that part has to be without question, really the most important thing because, you know, thoroughbreds lack a lot of the elasticity, but you can find some really, really still good movers out there. And those mares make excellent dams. And then as far as stallions, you know, I look for stallions that are really good jumpers because I'm crossing them on my thoroughbred mares, but they have to jump across the fence. I can't have a, a horse that's a show jumping horse that goes straight up. They need to jump forward. And it, it's hard to, hard to visualize that, but you need a horse that, that's going to go forward over the fence, not just up. We don't need the real careful ones that are two feet above the fence because they're going to lose time on cross country. So I'm looking for something that's got a good jump, good with his knees and jumps across the fence. And when you see the difference, sometimes you watch some of these show jumping horses and you'll see they almost stall in the air and come down. They're two feet over while you have others that kind of jump forward. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a hard thing. You just have, you just have to go watch a few and then you're like, oh yeah, now I see what that, what that looks like. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm an amateur rider, low-level eventer, and I've had a couple of friends in recent years who, um, in order to buy, you know, a quality horse, they bought it young. So they bought it as a yearling or a two-year-old and kick it out in the field at their own farm and then slowly start producing it. I know the Irish bred horses are very popular right now in eventing, and most of my friends have gone have gone that route. But just curious if you have any advice for someone who maybe wants to buy a horse of that age range, you know, like a, a yearling or a two-year-old with the goal to produce it themselves down the road. What do you look like? What would you suggest someone look for in a, in a young horse when they're seeing that ad, when they're seeing the video of them on the ground with, the, you know, still with the mare or. I think it's a lot easier to look at foals than it is a yearling or two-year-old. I think a yearling okay. or a two-year-old, uh, you know, good luck. Sometimes like <laughs> okay. the yearlings, the yearlings are so, most of them are so unbalanced. You occasionally will have one that really is still well put together. And I think just looking at the way they move across the ground, like lightly that they're, you know, running them, they're out in the field. They're, they're able to do lead changes. They can turn on a dime. They can, you know, they look, they look an, like an athlete. You have some that don't, but you know, they kind of canter like plow horses and, you know, that is not going to be an upper level horse. It might be a fine, you know, training level below. I think for the adult amateur, you're looking at temperament. You want something that's friendly. It's been handled. No offense against the horses that are bought in Ireland, but, you know, most of them come straight out of the field right. and they have not been handled very much. And, you know, that's tough. Some of those horses are really tough. And I think finding something for an adult amateur that's been handled, it's got good temperament that, you know, you know that the, and some of this is just figuring stuff out, but what sire produces very good temperaments. There's some that are known to produce good temperaments and some that are known to not. And so looking for something like that. And then, you know, what level of athletic ability do you need? Do you, do you need that five-star horse that can turn on a dime and, and, you know, can dump you in a second? And we're looking at some horses that won't be named. <laughs> <laughs> she she does refer to him quite often. <laughs> oh boy! Or you know, or do you want something you know that that might not be that that athletic, but it's going to carry you around safely and it's going to be a good citizen? And I think sometimes you can tell the temperament, you know, how they've been handled and stuff like that, even as a, a yearling or a two-year-old. For for a lot of it, too, you're going on pedigree, you know, because like a yearling or a two-year-old, it's not very well balanced. I think you have to have some idea of pedigree and kind of 
well, what, you know, this, this pedigree is known to be kind of tough. This pedigree is known to be pretty easy. Th- those are things to look for. Sure. I mean, that all makes sense to me. Okay. So say you buy, you buy the yearling and it comes home to your, to your home barn with your horses in your backyard and you're an amateur like me. I mean, what, what's important for bringing on a young horse, especially, especially if you're not a professional and you're not, you don't have a big program going, what advice do you have for owners of, you know, what are those early days? What should they look like at, you know, at the farm for a young prospect? So my young horses live out 24 seven, except if the fields get too muddy for them to lie down. Cause I live in a really wet area. So during the winter, there's no dry spots. So they'll come in at night during the winter. Other than that, they live out, they don't get blanketed, but they do get handled. So they come in twice a day to eat. They get fly sprayed. They get their feet picked. They're learning to stand in cross ties right now. They'll wear fly boots. If the, you know, I don't want them stamping too much on the ground. I think all those just basic, basic good citizens, practice loading on a trail or practice, you know, all those things. I, I think that you can still treat them like horses, but have manners. And I think that that's, that's the most important thing. That's going to be, they're going to trust you. You know, you've given them all sorts of experiences. You can do some in-hand work with them, you know, as far as moving away from pressure and that type of things, just so that they're well-rounded citizens, but you have to let them be horses, you know, they're, if, and if you can turn them out with other young horses, I think that's the best. But if not, they need to go out with some other horses at least. That's really good advice because that's what, I mean, we have ours kind of out in the field with other horses. Sometimes, you know, currently the younger one is out with my five-year-old because they look about to be the same size because he stopped growing. And I don't think, unfortunately, he's going to grow any bigger at five. So (laughs) we're stuck with like a (laughs) 15 one honey. So I love it because we do the same. We bring our young ones in and I think it really does make a difference. They are a lot easier I will tell you to break if they've been handled, especially like yep. just how Elizabeth was talking, because it's so important with those first couple of days when they're used to you and you're lunging them and doing all that. When we start to break them, it's it's been night and day because, yeah, not not to throw the Irish on the bus or anything else like that. But we got one from Ireland that had literally just been brought out of a field, not touched. And it was so quick. It it dumped Doug faster than Carl. Don't worry. It was very, very <laughs> quick in those first couple of days. So I think it is very important. But speaking of which, I think the breeding for sport in America is an up and coming industry. You talk about there's other breeders out there. They really are doing it. And it's, can you tell us why and how it's so important to support the U.S. breeders over here? Well, first of all, I think horse prices are astronomical in Europe and mm-hmm. In my opinion, Europe doesn't sell us their best. Like they, they keep the best for themselves. So I think that that's the first thing is that you're, you're not buying the best is hidden away somewhere. So I think that that's important. Secondly, there's some, some diseases that we're seeing now in horses from Europe that are associated kind of in Europe. A lot of the young horses grow up almost like cattle. They're in big, big, I want to say feedlots, but big enclosures with, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 other horses. They're fed a lot of silage and that's just Europe. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a different way of raising horses, but we're seeing some diseases like EDM, which is a vitamin E mm-hmm. deficiency, which is showing up in some of these, I think more in horses imported from Europe. And the problem is it doesn't show up until they're older and they're competing. And then there's no pre-mortem diagnosis at this point. It's only after a necropsy. So yeah. 
you know, it's a different way of raising horses. And I'm not, I don't know why we should be seeing more of it now, but we do seem to be seeing it. And, you know, unfortunately you can have a pristine vetting now and two years from now, your horse could develop EDM. And I do think it's a little bit more prevalent in some of the European warm blood. So um, that's you know, what we're hearing too, is that it's more prevalent over there as well. Yeah. The horses yep. we've and seen. Yeah, and I think it's because of, the, like I said, they're um, raised uh, really, a lot of them come in for the winter and live in big barns with, uh, you know, they don't go out on pasture or anything like that until the pastures are good again in the spring. And I think that that tends to be a, a little bit, maybe part of the issue. I, I don't have the answers. I mean, I'm not the yeah. one investigating it, but I do think that the way we raise horses over here may predis- may give us less of an inclination. I'm not going to say we're clear of it, but less of an inclination toward it. But honestly, the best reason is because I think we have the horses here in the U.S. and we should be supporting our U.S. horses. Absolutely, I'd love to see the I'd love to see the whole team on U.S. horses. Honestly. Right, that would be pretty amazing. That would be awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we love all your insights and everything else. And hope our listeners got to a little bit of knowledge about how to bring up some young horses and support the U.S. breeders. It was it was great. Like I said, it, it's. It's a it's a huge topic. We don't have all the answers, but if anyone has any questions, I'd be glad to help. I I love matchmaking. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right, guys. It's time for Rose and Thorn. Who wants to go? I can go first. Okay. Do it. So my rose would be that my physical therapy is going so well. I'm getting towards the end of it and starting to feel like my leg is somewhat normal again. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So I'm able to do more movements and just getting stronger and stronger. So I'm really excited about that, but that can just kind of be in the past. So I'm thrilled about that. And then my thorn is... It's breeding season and it's just annoying. We're trying to breed the star witness horse to Chaco too. And so we kind of like last minute, she like came into heat like really quickly. And so it didn't take. And so now we have another round of it. So I've just been taking her back and forth to the clinic to keep getting checked. So I'm hoping she takes this time and that we can have a healthy little Colt next year, but or Philly, whichever one, you don't know. So just one, but I'd really like her to take, and I think it'd be a really, really cool baby. So I just have to get through the frustrating process of driving it back and forth, and then hopefully it will become my rose. <laughs> there you I go. I know. Fingers crossed. That's exciting. Jesse, what about you? Okay. So my thorn is that I'm a helicopter pet parent, and I leave tomorrow to go on this very long Asia trip. And I'm worried about all my pets. It's like giving me lots of anxiety I, for the first time in my life too. Cause like I've traveled all the time while having pets, but I think it's because we lost the Greyhound kind of subtly suddenly in January and Mikey's injury that I just, I don't know. We've That's had a lot. Yeah. I've had some things in my life lately that now I'm like, Oh, this is a long time to leave everybody. But I will say that my rose is that I am very lucky to have a wonderful close-knit group of people around me that are going to take care of everybody. And I shouldn't be worried because they're wonderful and totally qualified. And I know they're going to treat all of my animals like they're their own. So my brain should relax and I should enjoy my trip and everybody's going to be fine. Okay. Absolutely. (laughs) They will be fine. (laughs) But yeah. Lots of stuff this week with just 
you know, the whirlwind of life trying to get everything ready to leave. But um, what about you, Ellie? Well, my rose and my thorn are also connected because it is Berkeley getting his standing MRI done today. Oh, boy. I mean, he's so mildly lame right now. It's basically just I want to make sure it's nothing soft tissue before I put him back in work because if it is soft tissue and I do damage. Anyway, I'm just triple checking that everything is good. No, that's Um, smart. You know, that's the way to do it. Yeah. And my rose is that he was such a good sport for the entire. I mean, obviously, I've never been present for a standing MRI and the whole process was really cool and just such amazing technology. And Berkeley was such a gentleman about it. And they were talking about how most horses don't stand as well as he does. And I was like, well, he is half draft. So I'm sure that (laughs) probably helps. But my thorn is that it took three different clinics. I got denied by two different clinics for a standing MRI saying that his feet were too big for the machine. and Like, just, like, immediately dismissed, like, yeah, he's not going to fit. And they didn't even, like, ask me for, like, the measurement of his foot. They just heard, like, draft cross. And they just, like, I gave them more information. They were like, no, like, we won't do it. So you probably ought to just do the the one under general. And so being the kind of annoyingly advocating pet parent that I am, I called the company that makes the standing MRI machines And I spoke to the people who actually train other doctors on how to use the MRI machine. I talked about all of his hoof measurements and everything. And lo and behold, he fit like a glove. Perfectly fine. That's perfect. So I just like I feel I feel both pride in that, but also sad because I hate to think that other people who are nervous about putting their draft crosses, especially under general anesthesia when they don't have to, you know, I feel bad that they might be immediately getting dismissed for something that is possible just because, you know, they don't want to work through it with you. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was really grateful to have found this amazing place right in Cochranville, PA, a place called Equigen, and literally right around the corner from Boyd Martin's place. And I'm just, it was such a good experience for me and for Berkeley, and he's able to be home tonight. He's able to not be recovering from getting general anesthesia. He's going to be able to go outside tonight, and I'm just I'm I'm happy about that. But I'm I'm sad that more clinics aren't being as open to it and kind of just dismissing based on size without making sure they're not yeah. too big. That's a lot. I mean, I just feel like that's added stress that's not necessary and i understand to you know to the professionals they have to ensure all this right but that's just like a lot of geez that's a lot yes yeah but i just i and i feel like too i i i have pictures of his measurements and i'm actually going to contact both of the places and be like look if a horse has these measurements they will fit in your machine Um, yeah because i think they should know i mean just because they might not do a lot of draft crosses doesn't mean they aren't able to. So I'm hoping that that will at least help more people in my kind of situation to be able to have this kind of experience with their horses. Sure. All right, guys. So I have a mailbag that came from our Facebook group that I thought, Jess, you're the only one who can answer this, but we'll be very supportive. (laughs) 
Perfect. <laughs> the person who posted it made it very clear that it was a mailbag that they wanted us to answer on the show. And we have talked about this previously with other guests and hosts like Alex Wells when she was on the show. Anyways, so Jess, the question is, I'm curious about riding while pregnant and during postpartum. This poster has a doctor who is not very familiar with horseback riding and is weighing heavily on the safer side. But obviously we know there are plenty of women who have ridden until they were like eight months pregnant, right? And so I know you've talked a lot about your own experiences and how you rode when you were pregnant and when you decided to stop. But maybe we can refresh listeners' memories and and if you have any examples that you think would be helpful for this person who asked. So I think it is important. My doctor was not a horse person at all. And she was very clear, like, okay, look, I'd like to ride and I'd like to keep it as safe as possible. And so I would involve your doctor and just kind of maybe break it down. And maybe they don't want to really talk about it. And the easy answer is to say no. Well, maybe just kind of say, hey, look, like, so just example for myself with Hudson, I rode till I was... And it was my first, so I wasn't very big at the beginning. So I was like five or six months pregnant and I had a really good friend kind of like, you know, she wasn't pregnant at the time, but then got pregnant. And she was just like, as long as it's like in your pelvis, you're probably pretty safe. She was like, don't ride ones that you think are going to be bad or tricky or anything like that. Definitely don't do those, but try to do the ones that like are just pretty even going and that you don't think you're going to get like bucked off because it is still a risk. And so I rode, I think I was five or six months pregnant when I stopped with Hudson because I was, it was still like in my pelvis. So I felt that that was safe. And my doctor was like, you're totally good. You, that is like totally fine. I talked about like what kind of exercise I could do. I was very just conversations with the doctor was the best. And that's what I do is be like, look, like, why can't I ride? Like, is there something going on? Because she knew I rode that long with my first one. And then I went in for, I was pregnant with Abigail and at eight weeks or nine weeks, I had something I'm terrible about medical language or something, but basically there was something that if I was to like jar it or something, I actually couldn't exercise at all. And so they were, it was a risk for a miscarriage. So I didn't do anything. And then at 12 or 14 weeks, we had already hired two girls to come in and help ride and everything. So at 12 or 14 weeks, my doctor's like, okay, now you could ride for like another month and a half. And I was like, okay, well at that point, like I've already given up and I've already done it. So I chose not to ride with Abigail at all because of the situation that happened in the beginning. Then I just was like, I didn't ride. So I, I rode probably five or six months with Hudson. And then I had that situation with Abigail and I, I went to, I went to the gym and I actually did a lot of like Pilates and stuff classes. Um, Aiken yoga actually was amazing. So I go to classes there almost every day, at least five days a week, I would go to classes. And I did that until I was like, I mean, like weeks before I was due basically. And so I just had a conversation with my doctor and the Aiken yoga had a very, uh, two of the instructors were very good with dealing with postpartum and people in being pregnant and exercising. So they actually did a lot of modifications to my workout. So I think that's the biggest thing is like find people that if you're going to work out or if you're going to ride or something like that, 
that they have experience with it. And so I think my biggest thing for you is to ask the doctor why he's not comfortable you riding because he doesn't understand riding or is there something else and ask him whatever kind of other exercises you can do. And if he's giving you the clear to do everything, then, you know, maybe it is because he's just not willing to be open about the horses. I feel like that's great advice. And for, you know, I've written stories on this topic. I've obviously, I mean, I've never been pregnant, so I can't speak to that, but I do feel like it's so individual, right? Everyone has yeah. such a unique individual experience. Well, I so- have friends that have ridden to their eight months pregnant. I mean, they're totally fine. My doctor wasn't comfortable with me doing that. And so sure. we made, you know, we came to terms that five or six months I would stop and, you know, I couldn't go to certain She'd let me fly an airplane and go all over Europe, but I couldn't go to Peru because of Zika. So there was lots of conversations about my travel, about what I couldn't couldn't do. And so she, I think she had to become kind of open about it. And she was very amazing to listen. And that's why I love her as a doctor. And so I think that's the biggest thing is they've got to have conversations with you and have you understand why sometimes, because like, you know, I would have loved to go to Peru and do, Doug was in the Pan Ams that year. And I watched it with my best friend at the lake house because she's like, absolutely not. It's not worth it. And she's like, but don't worry next week or two weeks later, you could go to Europe. And so then I was, okay, there's, there's a happy medium. Right. No, I think that's great. I think it was Jesse Phoenix who we've had on the podcast before who I, I always admired how open she was about how hard her pregnancy was for her. She was somebody who was like very sick, you know, yep. through her pregnancy. And uh, I think just the more women are comfortable sharing their experiences, the better it is for all of us, right? Because we learn something from it. So my advice is just to echo what Jess has to say of talk to your doctor, but also talk to your riding friends about it. I think you'd be surprised at what some of your friends who have gone through this themselves might have to say. So if you want to ask us a question and have us answer it on the air, you could always send us an email. Our email address is hello at heelsdownmedia.com, or you can join our Facebook group. It's the Heels Down Happy Hour Podcast Lounge. And if you want to hear more from us, you can subscribe to the Heels Down Spark, the only daily equestrian newsletter by going to bit.ly slash spark by HD. We want to say thank you to our partners this week. Clip my horse TV. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.